Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. It's that time every three months where we have a very special guest host on Spirit in Action, the wonderfully talented, insightful, and spiritually deep Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Peterson produces a monthly podcast on a variety of climate change topics, approaches, and workers, and weaves them together masterfully to educate and motivate those concerned about the future of this planet. Today, Peterson has a particularly rich assortment of guests and outlooks. How do we have hard discussions respectfully accessing our better angels? How do we access the power to do good work in really hard times? Is it possible to go from extracting oil as a personal livelihood to working to keep carbon out of the atmosphere? Answer to these and more via Peterson Toscano and Citizens Climate Radio. Over to our Spirit in Action guest host today, Peterson Toscano. Roll the musical introduction. Thank you, Mark, for once again opening up the hosting desk for me, and thank you for listening. Today, I have stories to share that give me great hope. You will learn about a new anthology by faith leaders. It's called Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis. I speak with co-authors about the book, and you will hear excerpts from two moving and inspiring essays. Dr. Natasha Dijonette and Karina Newsom often speak about environmental justice and the need to make space for women of color in the climate movement. Dr. Dijonette reads her piece, The View from My Window, and Karina, a bird expert, reads The Thing with Feathers. Also in this episode, you will meet Solemi Hernandez, originally from Venezuela. She now lives in Florida with her two sons. Professionally, she has gone full circle. She, along with her father and grandfather, worked in Venezuela's petroleum industry. Today, though, she is a passionate climate change activist pursuing justice for farm workers in Florida. She speaks poignantly about the ways she overcame climate despair. Playwright Chantal Bilodeau, a French-Canadian, tells us about climate change theater action. In 2015, 2017, and then in 2019, she commissioned 50 playwrights to write 50 short climate plays. She shares the changes she is seeing in these plays and lets you know how you can get your hands on them. Also, I bring back an art house segment I recorded two years ago. Marshall Saunders, the founder of Citizens Climate Lobby, shared with us a book recommendation. I expected he'd suggest a climate book. Instead, he pointed me to a 19th century Russian novel. Marshall passed away at the age of 80 at the end of 2019, so I'm glad I was able to interview him and can share some of his warmth and wisdom with you. As people concerned about climate change, we need inspiration and hope. Hope is sometimes in short supply when you do climate work. Part of the despair is when we see the animosity between Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives. Recently, though, 
I met some young people who gave me a well-needed shot of hope. And you, on the show today, will meet two college students from East Tennessee State University. They are concerned about the partisan divide in the USA and on their campus. As a part of an organization called Better Angels, they've begun to build bridges between conservatives and liberals. Meet Adam Rosenbaum. I grew up in Bristol, Virginia. I currently live in Kingsport, Tennessee. I am a business finance major with minors in accounting and storytelling. I've grown up in a strong Christian background. Both of my parents are uh, are believers. Myself and all four of my siblings, we were raised and put into Christian education. So I completed 13 years of Christian elementary school, middle school, and high school. So religion has it has played a, a, a vital role in the way I was raised and in the formation of my worldview. My, uh, my perspectives are informed by my religious beliefs um, in Christianity and as Christ as the Son of God. Adam was a senior in high school during the last presidential election. On the political scale, he leans towards the conservative side. I'll steal from the better angels here. I typically lean more red. To translate that, that's a Republican or more conservative. Meet Austin Ramsey. Yes, so I'm 20 years old um, and I am studying information system with a minor in business management. Faith is also important to Austin and he plays key roles in his church. So I go to Cologne Heights Baptist Church. Um, I've actually been a lead of their sound technical team for uh, going on 10 years now. We have a, an active senior adult community, and I have become very plugged into them more, actually, than my youth group when I was in youth, which kind of sounds weird, but uh, I found a, a, you know, a connection to them, and we shoot pool in the mornings at, the, at our family life center, uh, drink coffee, and just, just I get to soak in the wisdom that they've learned. Austin came to ETSU with values he developed during childhood. One of the one of the biggest things you know I've been raised around is you know integrity and and you know being honest with people. Um, through my business, you know I work with uh, community leaders around the region. Just doing what you say you're going to do, having the integrity to to not cover things up in the background when it could feel easy and might be better for you. You know, from a business standpoint, it might seem better to do it that way versus having the integrity to do it right. You win over 10 times, 100 times. Um, so those two things, integrity and honesty, are big. I really like to center my life around the people I get to know and the and the and those relationships because things fade away, but people and memories stick uh, for, for the long term. Both Adam and Austin were concerned by the growing partisan divide between conservative and liberal Americans. Fortunately, Adam and Austin learned about a new group called Better Angels. Better Angels, in their beginnings, were was essentially a group of people who came together just disturbed by the, the rancor and just the polarization in the way that people were talking about politics after the 2016 election. They sat down with a group of, I want to say, you know, eight reds and, and nine blues or something like that. And they held the first of what they called their red-blue workshops. And essentially, it was a couple of, you know, psychologists, counselor-type people who figured out, you know, we have this framework for how we 
teach people to talk to each other, you know, in marriage counseling and things like that. So why don't we just take that and apply it to politics? And that's what they did. And they had this weekend essentially retreat for people. And there's a really moving video of it on their website of these people who could basically, they wouldn't even talk to each other and called each other their enemies. And I don't know if I could ever be friends with someone who thinks that. And it showed them break down these walls and come together. And by the end, they're incredible friends and they were doing, you know, they were issuing joint statements on things. Um, and it was a, it was a night and day turnaround. Adam and Austin decided they needed to bring Better Angels to their campus. It was the first debate that Better Angels had on a college campus. Uh, it was a neat moment for us to trial this style. The students really connected with the style. We had students on both sides of the issue that, at the end, worked together to say, hey, we need to meet and talk about this issue. For that first event, they chose a thorny topic. East Tennessee State University is in rural eastern Tennessee. Firearms are kind of a part of most people's lives. And so we set forth the resolution that said, resolved students should be allowed to carry guns on campus. The whole premise of the event after that was that people were asked to either speak in the affirmative or in the negative on the topic. To enable an actual exchange of ideas to occur, Better Angels events are highly structured. Here's Austin. They're actually what they refer to as a parliamentarian-style debate. It's modeled after the English Parliament. You know, you have a moderator it's what was referred to as a chair who is proceeding over the debate. And they are instrumental in ensuring that everyone follows the rules, that the timings are followed correctly, and they really just help keep the flow of the event. The biggest part of the beginning is actually the rules. Most people are not familiar with this debate style. So you spend a good amount of time in the beginning discussing, here's the style of the event, here's, here's kind of how we're going to do it. We're going to have three sets of speeches with times that vary. So you start with longer speeches in the beginning. Towards the end, you get to smaller speeches. You have two speakers on the affirmative side, two on the negative. Those are four people that you have already identified before the debate that are willing to start the debate. They're, they're kind of the hook to get people thinking about the issue and kind of get it off the ground. Here's Adam. April Lawson, she created this style. If she felt like it was necessary, would even ask a question of her own to the speaker. One of the questions she loves to ask is, what about that moves you emotionally? And what we did is we allowed these people to start telling their stories and talking emotionally or talking about emotion, excuse me, not necessarily emotionally, but about their emotions and being able to create this environment where they could display doubt about their own side about their view of something, because what it was is it wasn't an echo chamber where you only heard, you know, your opinion echoed back to you or because there was a pretty even split of people in that room who very strongly disagreed with each other. But what we created was a place where people weren't being personally attacked. You know, I didn't have to worry about protecting myself because we, we, we got people to buy in to this culture. We're here to learn from each other. And to understand each other better, that doesn't mean we're going to agree, but it's no longer I'm going to convince you and you're going to convince me. It's I'm going to understand you. And maybe if I can understand you and understand where you're coming from, then I can see your side of the argument a little bit better. 
And in our minds, that's what a safe space was. The safe space for people to be present, be themselves, be challenged, but leave not feeling little or like they were crushed or belittled. The event lasted about two hours. It was a huge success. So much so they organized another debate some weeks later. The resolution was resolved the U.S. should move to an entirely merit-based immigration system. And it went really well as well because people come to these debates thinking that it, you know, a, a debate where you can win or lose, and then they, they quickly realize it's a parliamentarian-style debate. People were very active in the conversation. We even had the mayor of our local town come. Adam explains the challenges of bringing fellow red-leaning conservatives into these discussions. Having something to defend was easier to sell to them because they felt like they were coming to show up in something that was kind of already geared towards them as opposed to, hey, come to this, you know, blue event and we want you to talk. You could essentially sell it as like, hey, you know, this is we're going to go talk about gun control. You know, it, it, it feels friendlier, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And what about climate change? When I visited the campus of ETSU, the thought was we would have a debate, but quickly Adam and Austin realized the topic was not so straightforward. It's almost as though red versus blue, almost talking about two different things. If we wanted kind of a more red resolution, it was something like, you know, resolved climate change is made up or it's fake or resolved the earth naturally has cycles and climate and so we don't need to do anything or it's not man-made, something like that. A lot of people on the, even not just the blue side, but even on the science side of things, they're done debating that. They're done talking about, hey, you know, climate change is real or it isn't. They're, they're, they have to talk about solutions now. And so a blue resolution may have been, you know, resolved a carbon tax is the way to resolve climate change or something like that. If I set up a resolution where I said resolved climate change isn't real, could I have, you know, a, a well-split room of reds and blues there who would be willing to talk about it? Probably, but half the room is thinking, why are we still talking about this? And then if I do it in the other way, you know, a carbon tax is the resolution to climate change. One side of the room thinks this is a really engaging conversation, but the other side says, why are we even talking about this? Climate change isn't real. We concluded that a possible resolution to debate could be around fossil fuel. Something like, we resolve that oil, gas, and coal are the ideal sources of energy for the campus. That would be the debate topic. That's a compelling, a compelling resolution. And, uh, you know, and herein lies, you know, this conversation that we're having is one of the most difficult parts of planning these debates is the resolution is so critically important. The success or failure of it hinges on the quality of the resolution and every single word has to be analyzed. Um, and, he, you know, which way is it leaning? What about can versus should versus is? Think all that. But yeah, I think to talk about, as particularly in our area, fossil fuels, because coal is very prevalent in, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia area. And a lot of people come from family backgrounds where, you know, their grandfather, their uncle, or their father was a coal miner. So it's very personal. In a country that seems divided with citizens at each other's throats, students at ETSU, along with Better Angel community events around the country, are modeling thoughtful civic discourse. I have been 
astounded by the need for this everywhere. And that's that's college campuses, that's businesses, that's nonprofits, that's households, that's relationships. It's everywhere. But one of the key things that I've taken away is we agree on more than we realize. Adam and Austin want to keep the conversation going. So me and Adam are continuing to work on having two or three debates per semester that just challenge students to think about what do they really know about an issue, but what do they really feel? What, what do they think about that issue? Because often we get lost in the facts that we're told to understand and believe. We're not really taught to talk about how we actually feel about an issue. Through the Better Angels debates, it's all about what do you feel about this? How, is it, how has it impacted your life? How does your geography, your place in life, affect your view on that issue. Adam shares some excellent advice for any of us who want to have productive conversations among people with diverse political and world views. And instead of trying to prove something or defend myself, just show up curious and say, tell me about that. Why? You know, I don't get that. So rather than being angry that I don't get that, I'm going to say, well, okay, tell me about how you got there. And it's, it's, I listen to understand. And when I do that, I find that there is so little that I found is even really worth arguing at all. Because when somebody tells me the reason they believe something and it is so deeply held to them that they're tearing up telling me about it, I'm not going to disrespect them by saying, OK, well, that's wrong. doesn't mean I have to agree with them. You know, we haven't changed the world. You know, there isn't a there isn't a statue being built at ETSU for this work. Um, but what it's done is there's been people who weren't friends who now are friends or who couldn't talk to each other, but now can. And people who have said, man, I've just never got to tell people about that before. And that to me, that is what it's worth because it's, it's tying these little relationships back together. And if we keep doing that, eventually this, this rhetoric that we're hearing will start to, to dissipate because all of a sudden people are just learning how to respect each other again. If you want to learn more about Better Angels and find out about events near you, visit their website, better-angels.org. That's better-angels.org. Now it is time for the Art House. The book is called Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis. That is co-editor Reverend Dr. Leah Shade. She and Reverend Margaret Jonas Billet brought together 21 faith leaders. To share their wisdom about the spiritual resources that we will need for the difficult days ahead. And it is an anthology of 21 essays by religious, environmental leaders and activists. It's a wide range of people, from scientists to theologians to community organizers, all of whom are very concerned about the climate crisis, and each of whom is writing about their own spiritual sources of strength. In what do they root themselves in order not to be overwhelmed, not to be overcome by panic, or inertia, or paralysis, or burnout for that matter? What keeps them strong, and what are the perspectives and the spiritual practices that uh, help them keep steady. Dr. Natasha Dijanet, a research coordinator at the National Environmental Health Association, is one of these contributors. 
And it was just a great opportunity to see where two important parts of my being intersected. And then to read these stories from others and their life-changing moments as well, or what led them to the space of climate change and how faith played a role in that. All of it speaks out to me with each story that I read. It just continues to um, ground me more so um, in this space. Karina Newsom from Young Evangelicals for Climate Action was not feeling terribly hopeful. The process of writing her essay and then reading the other essays helped her tremendously. Um, it was in the middle. I was right around in my field season at, for graduate school. I was working out in the marsh and I was kind of confronted with some of the harsh realities of species that are facing the effects of climate change. I was feeling a bit hopeless, but through you know much contemplation and, and, and thinking and, and making connections and kind of meditating on the work that has been done so far and the people who surround me in this work, I was able to kind of push this out. But when I got this book in the mail and I was able to then see all of the author's contributions, yours, Peterson, Catherine Hayhoe's and, and so many other incredible peoples, it was like, even though I had contributed a hopeful chapter and, and in, in theory and a hope am a hopeful person, I didn't even know how much I needed what everyone else had to say until I read it. Now we hear selected readings from Rooted and Rising. Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis. Okay, I am Dr. Natasha DeJarnett. Gazing out my window, I think of climate experiences that have shaped my life. One extremely hot summer afternoon stands out. My parents and I were gathering very large, heavy rocks to construct the stone walkway. We were in a largely unshaded area on a hill, right off the interstate. I remember mom saying that she needed to sit down. I recall noticing that she was sweating profusely, like nothing I had ever seen before. She was short of breath, although she was sitting. Dad decided that she needed shade and water. When I looked in her eyes, I saw something I'd never seen before, helplessness. My mother is the strongest and most determined woman I know. But the look in her eyes let me know that something was seriously wrong. Realizing that the shade wasn't immediately happening, I wondered if her life was slipping away. I couldn't shake the terrifying thought of life without my mom. The woman who gave me life, who held my hand and kissed me when I was sick, who hugged me and told me that she loved me every single day, whose attention made me feel that I was the only person in her world and the woman who taught me to pray. Once Dad was able to get her some water, she started cooling off and feeling better. But that could have easily become another heat-related fatality statistic that day. The toxic combination of extreme heat plus strenuous activity, along with the poor air quality induced by the traffic emissions from the adjacent highway, created a perfect recipe for my mom's condition. This experience underscores my quest to halt global warming and prevent others from seeing their family members face climate-related health challenges. In my work, I emphasize that communities must find ways to help citizens adapt to the changing climate in order to protect public health. That means we need accessible cooling stations for extreme heat days, poor air quality alerts, and evacuation plans that ensure that all vulnerable populations will be transported safely, 
during extreme weather events. Karina Newsom. In the sanctuary of the outdoors, I look for birds. They remind me of hope. In the most desolate landscapes, whether barren from human destruction or naturally harsh, you will find birds that have discovered a niche in which to survive. And if you travel to the most biologically diverse and thriving ecosystems, you will find birds varying in brilliant color, free to evolve the most captivating adornments and behaviors. They remind me of the presence of God. If I ascend up into the heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. Psalm 139, verse 8. In seeking out and studying birds within God's sanctuary of the natural world, I discovered a restful and restorative hope bursting with life that perched gently in my soul. As I seek refuge in the forested hills and refreshing sanctuary that God's creation provides, I take comfort in this. There is no place I've gone where hope has not found a way to survive and perch gently in my soul. The book is Rooted and Rising, Voices of Courage in a Time of Climate Crisis. The book is available on the Roman and Littlefield website. You can just do a Google search. It is also available on Amazon. The 21 essays are organized by section, and after each section you will find questions to ponder and suggested spiritual practices. We have links in the show notes. Just visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog and click on the Citizens Climate Radio option on the right. That's citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Coming up in the second half of the show, a woman who worked for the oil industry in Venezuela now pursues climate justice in Florida, plus climate change theater action and a Russian novel that will restore your hope in humanity. Back to more of our guest host for today's Spirit in Action, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. But first, a note from me, Mark Helpsmeet, founder of Spirit in Action and Northern Spirit Radio. And our website is northernspiritradio.org. Closing in on 15 years of broadcasting for world healing. All the programs and links to the guests are on our northernspiritradio.org website, plus a place to rate and comment on all of those shows, and a beautiful donate button so you can do your part to energize and free our work, because we eschew, I can't help it, I like the word, we eschew funding from corporations and government. Donate to us if you're able, but only after you donate to your local community radio station from your hands and wallet. Lift up the local voice and change the world by empowering local alternative media. Let's rush back to more wonderful Citizens Climate Radio via Peterson Toscano. I want to introduce you to a fellow climate action figure. My guest today finds great joy and fulfillment in the climate work she does. In hearing some of her story, I hope it inspires you in your own. 
Meet Solemi Hernandez. Originally from Venezuela, Solemi has lived in the U.S. state of Florida for the past 17 years. She seeks to improve conditions for immigrant farm workers. She's also raising her two sons. And Solemi has taken on a very big mission. Actually, I'm trying to save the world. <laughs> to do so, Solemi volunteers and works with various groups. I have been a volunteer for many organizations, and I have been a volunteer for two years for Citizens Climate Lobby. I am now the Southeast Regional Coordinator. I am fortunate now I can do the work I do and get paid for it, and I don't have to have another full-time job to do what I'm passionate about, about, which is create social change and protect our environment. We created a Pachamama Alliance for Southwest Florida. It's a umbrella organization that connects every other environmental and social justice organization to do work for the community. I'm also involved with the Waterkeeper Alliance. I'm in the board of Calusa Waterkeepers, which is the local waterkeepers on this area. I'm also the conservation chair for Sierra Club in the area, Group Calusa. Salami has become a climate justice activist, seeking out ways to end fossil fuel pollution. It is a big shift from the work she and her family did back in Venezuela. Ironically, I used to work for the oil company on international investments as a secretary. Well, my, my grandfather was the first one who started in the oil company, and he built a career there without not even a college degree. He went up to the ladder until he was the, one of the leaders of the workers' union. And my dad, it's a chemical engineer. He just retired from the old company. And all my family, through my grandfather, got involved in the oil company. Her family lived in an oil town with plenty of perks and a fair share of problems. Well, you know, everything was just too... F- was fixed to be a nice community, Americanized community. I mean, we have golf camps where people can go play. And right next to the park where we used to play in front of my house, there was one of these oil drill machines. I mean, at the time, we we didn't realize, we didn't know better. But now all, all those images when I was a kid arise into my head and I question myself, you know, what, what will be? Because, I mean, these toxins get to be a problem when the exposure is chronic and you develop the disease. My dad is recently here and it, he came with us to a workshop we did on the consulate of Mexico in Miami. And he just for the first time talked about his experience and how he sometimes, whenever he was to the, he was on the field working, he he couldn't even breathe. Growing up, there were several factors that inspired and influenced Solomé to pursue climate justice work in later life. Her grandfather served as a powerful role model. I was raised by my grandparents and my grandfather. He used to be a member of El Sindicato, which is a labor union on the old companies. And when there was a dictatorship, Pere Jimenez, he was defending the workers' rights and he was in jail. So my grandfather was already involved into politics, defending worker rights. And he was in jail like for two years. So 
that stuck to me all my life. As a child, Solomay witnessed the negative impacts of fossil fuels right in front of her eyes. I used to live right in front of a lake called Lake of Maracaibo in La Ciudad del Zulia. And right in front of them, I could see this lake full contaminated. The joke was, is like, we don't want to put your hands in there or anything else because you're going to come out with a third eye or who knows what other mutation you may have because you're exposed to, to these toxins in the water. So since I was really early, one of the things that really broke my heart is that this beautiful lake that was connected with the, Carib- with the Atlantic Sea, fresh water connected with the Atlantic Sea, and I could never enjoy it. And there were signs early on that Solomi was not going to go a conventional route in life. I was a rebel. (laughs) I was always, you know, one of those, not your regular teenager or girl. I was a tomboy and always a rebel, you know. And I always was a person that I will defend my friends. You can mess around with me. I don't take it personal, but you mess up with my friend. I will take it personal. And I was... Since I was a little kid, I remember, you know, it's another world in Latin America. I mean, people do fight. <laughs> and I remember I was a tomboy and I was ready to fight for my friends. Solomé is passionate about pursuing climate solutions, both for mitigation and adaptation. For her, the climate issue became very real in 2017, when her sons were just six and ten years old. I was here for Irma. Uh, I experienced it myself. I was three weeks without electricity. Before the storm hit, she and the family evacuated to an emergency shelter. We went to a school, and actually we thought we were getting away for the hurricane, but that's exactly where the hurricane entered through. We slept on the floor. My kids, my my aunt... We took our dog, of course, all our pets. We were three days in this shelter, which was a school. When the hurricane started, we were on the cafeteria, sleeping in the floor. At one point, the cafeteria started to get flooded. After three days in the shelter, the family returned to a ruined neighborhood and a house without electricity. It was really hard to come home because most of the, most of the streets were blocked. There were a lot of trees, there were a lot of flooding, but we did return home. And then after that, it was just, you know, trying to figure out how to survive. The the heat was impossible. Not many people had water in this area, but my water is not connected to the electricity. So I did have water. Everybody around my community came and took showers here. But it was so hot that whenever we went to sleep, we had to go to sleep wet. We used to get on the shower, get wet, and get in the bed completely wet because the heat was unbearable. It was during Irma that Solomi witnessed what she already knew. Big storms like this one affects everyone, but not equally. We got the opportunity to help people on the farm and worker communities. And that was something that uplift my spirit and make me feel good under the crisis that we were living. But my aunt and many people that I know, their their homes got damaged. They, it took a long time for their home to get repaired. They had to pay high deductibles for 
home insurance. I also had a friend that had a dialysis very often. When Irma happened, he was transferred to Tampa and after that, after that he died. It's the difference in between somebody that have the financial means into somebody that don't. And in between that have other intersectional issues for example, immigrants get, were afraid, which is where the people that we were working with, we got to work with the, farm, the coalition of farmer workers. They were afraid to talk to FEMA to get resources because they were concerned about FEMA or any government agency to find out their immigration status and where they were. So the community had to get together to help them. Becoming more and more aware of the threats climate change brings can be overwhelming for some. I was just to be very depressed before, and it was because I couldn't accept the kind of world we live on. Everybody's for their own, so there is not actually a sense of community, and that is something that is affecting. It can affect psychologically many people just like it did with me. I fell alone. It's really hard when you fall in into that depression because you feel like you don't belong to this world. So I see the urgency. For me, it's urgency. And actually, be doing this, all my environmental work, is something that I have give a sense of purpose in my life. And... Through my activism and helping out with restoration projects and the work I do with CCL and other organizations is something, it's like what I said, it's my antidepressant. I don't see myself not doing this because otherwise I'd be sleeping in a bed depressed because, you know, it's what is at least make me feel like I'm doing something to better the world. And, and I have met the most wonderful people in the work I do. I guess it's other, this is what I have gave sense to my life. Earlier this month, Solemi traveled to Madrid for COP25, the UN Climate Conference. The very concerns she has for justice and equality in her community are being echoed all over the world. Uh, we're looking into shifting the mentality, and even we were talking about how things have changed. Human rights issues have changed, like the right to water or clean air. Even on the system itself, we have the right of a healthy environment. Salami recognizes there are multiple solutions that need to be pursued at the same time, including carbon pricing. I mean, carbon pricing is one of the most effective ways to address climate change. And just to put it in simple matters, like I tell everybody else, and keeping that simple messages so people can make sense of, of the science and the economy of carbon pricing. Uh, right now, renewables are becoming so cheap or competitive with fossil fuel. When you take those subsidies and put a price on it, the market is going to it's gonna shift. We have a dividend component, and the dividend component, it, it takes care of that gap to the underserved communities, the most vulnerable communities. But I think on into the on, into the landscape when it comes to environmental justice, we need to bring to the table those people on those vulnerable communities at the front line and just get those uh, relationships strong enough that we can trust each other and work together. 
During Hurricane Irma, Solemi saw her community come together. Building community is essential climate work that complements all the other work we do. Living in, in a community that have that sense of community is just part of a well-being. You feel more happy. You are more, just more happy to be in a place where there's a sense of community and you feel that they're not alone. But I am passionate into what I do. You know, I really do this with the, the hope to create change and inspire all the ones with the best intentions of our communities to really do what is right and what is best for who are around us. I mean, we're living in extraordinary times of history and just the matter of fact of being here alive, we're part of it. Uh, we have the power to do something and every moment counts and every little action for more little that it is, it's something that adds to the bigger pot. And this is a movement that we're creating. Like just like every movement in history, this time our movement is a movement of the rights. It's a human rights movement. Salami is modeling for me a way to face our present and our future with empathy, sensitivity, and a commitment to fairness and justice. Over in our show notes, I have links to the various organizations where Solomi volunteers and to her work at Citizens Climate Lobby. Go to citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Click on the Citizens Climate Radio option on the right, then look for episode 43. Now it is time for the art house. Back in episode 20, Chantal Bilodeau joined us in the art house. I'm a playwright and the artistic director of a small organization called the Arctic Cycle. The mission of the Arctic Cycle is to use theater to create conversations around the climate crisis. Originally from Montreal, Chantal now lives in New York City. Every two years, she organizes a major international event. Climate Change Theatre Action uh, was created in 2015. It happens every other year. And essentially, we commission 50 playwrights from around the world. So every continent is represented and we have a good balance of cultural backgrounds to write five-minute plays, very short plays, about an aspect of climate change based on a prompt. And then we take this collection of plays, we make it available to whoever is interested in organizing an event in their community within a certain time window that, that's in the fall. And we encourage people to use one or several plays to add materials from local artists if they want to and to design the event exactly how they want it. So it serves their aesthetic, their community, their needs. And then we ask them to report so we have a sense of who was there, how it went. They send us documentation, photos and videos if they have them. And then we build up this sort this movement and, you know, that happens within three months where everybody has a sense of uh, what other people are doing and can get encouraged by the fact that even though their event might be small, it's being repeated all over the world. Uh, so it feels like something really significant. And then as part of the event, because it's called Climate Change Theater Action, what is an action that you can add to, 
to this artistic presentation. An action can be bringing people together who would not normally encounter each other. It can be a panel with scientists. It's like a way to deepen the conversation that is started with the artistic presentation. For COP25, once again, Climate Change Theater Action asked playwrights to use their creativity to write short plays around a specific theme. Lighting the way... So we asked playwrights to think about climate warriors and climate heroes who are lighting the way forward. Um, who are the people who are doing some great stuff? It could also be some abstract concept or a spirit, an animal, a community. But just how are we moving forward in a positive way? Is there any way to highlight that? People at over 200 events in 30 countries heard readings of one or more of the plays. They gathered in schools, places of worship, public spaces, and even in the water. A play was read in a kayak out in the water, and I thought that was just brilliant. <laughs> I wish I could have seen it, yeah. Since they started the project in 2015, Chantal sees positive changes. From 2015, uh, which is four years ago, they're getting more and more sophisticated. I think we're more informed about the issue and have more sophisticated opinions and react reactions to it. There was a sense of definitely community, a collective action also, as opposed to just individual action. So people wrote about the responsibility of big corporations and maybe how we can hold them accountable, a sense of all the activism that's going on in the world. So definitely a wider range, and more inter intersectionality also, as opposed to just uh, thinking about the environment. These short plays have added fresh perspectives and creativity to climate events all over. In fact, this might be something you want to organize. Most of the times, it's just a simple reading. No memorization is needed, just a little practice. So how can you get your hands on these plays? Yeah, the plays from 2017, the last time we did it, are published in an anthology and available through the York uh, University Bookstore online. Where is the Hope is the title of the anthology. And then the 2019 plays, the same thing will happen. They will be published in an anthology which, which will come out in 2020. To learn more about this work, visit climatechangetheateraction.com. And if you like theater, stay tuned to Citizens Climate Radio, because in 2020, we will begin to share some short radio dramas. If you have a story you want to submit for us to consider adapting, or if you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. When I spoke with Marshall Saunders, we talked about the news. These days, the screaming headlines come fast and furious. I asked Marshall if he had a recommendation for me. In addition to the news, what might I read that will help me in my climate advocacy? I expected he would suggest something by a climate scientist or a communicator. Instead, he pointed me to a Russian novelist who was born in 1828. He told me about Lev Nikolaevich Tolstoy. And I remember that Tolstoy wrote his last book when he was 68. It was called Resurrection. We talk about transformative experiences, and uh, the main character 
uh, Nekledo, I guess that's how you say it, had a transformational experience. And uh, so I would recommend Resurrection by Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina, published Resurrection in 1899. It is perhaps his most philosophical work. Tolstoy explores the complex human condition. The novel grapples with questions about good and evil and character. So I've taken Marshall's recommendations seriously and checked out the book. The main character, Dmitry Ivanovich Nekhludoff, is suddenly reminded of his past and the missteps he took that injured others. He is looking for redemption. The language in the novel is beautiful and the insights are profound. So I want to share with you some quotes from Tolstoy's Resurrection. And to read these quotes, I invited Glenn Retief, a memoirist originally from South Africa. Glenn now teaches at Susquehanna University. He's also my husband, so it was easy to get him in the studio to read these excerpts from Tolstoy's Resurrection. During that summer, Nekudov experienced that exaltation which youth comes to know not by the teaching of others, but when it naturally begins to recognize the beauty and importance of life, and man's serious place in it, when it sees the possibility of infinite perfection of which the world is capable, and devotes itself to that endeavor, not only with the hope, but with the full conviction of reaching that perfection which it imagines possible. One of the commonest and most generally accepted delusions is that every man can be qualified in some particular way. Said to be kind, wicked, stupid, energetic, apathetic, and so on. People are not like that. We may say of a man that he is more often kind than cruel, more often wise than stupid, more often energetic than apathetic, or vice versa. But it could never be true to say of one man that he is kind or wise, and of another that he is wicked or stupid. Yet we are always classifying mankind in this way, and it is wrong. Human beings are like rivers. The water is one and the same in all of them, but every river is narrow in some places, flows swifter in others. Here it is broad, there still, or clear, or cold, or muddy, or warm. It is the same with man. Every man bears within him the germs of every human quality, and now manifests one, now another, and frequently is quite unlike himself while still remaining the same man. Though men in their hundreds of thousands had tried their hardest to disfigure that little corner of the earth where they had crowded themselves together, paving the ground with stone so that nothing could grow, weeding out every blade of vegetation, filling the air with the fumes of coal and gas, cutting down trees and driving away every beast and every bird. Spring, however, was still warm, even in the town. The sun shone warm, the grass, wherever it had not been scraped away, revived and showed green, not only on the narrow strips of lawn on the boulevards, but between the paving stones as well and the birches, the poplars, and the wild cherry trees were unfolding their sticky, fragrant leaves, 
and the swelling buds were bursting on the lime trees. The jackdaws, the sparrows, and the pigeons were cheerfully getting their nests ready for the spring, and the flies, warmed by the sunshine, buzzed gaily along the walls. All were happy. Plants, birds, insects, and children. But grown-up people, adult men and women, never left off cheating and tormenting themselves and one another. It was not the spring morning which they considered sacred and important, not the beauty of God's world given to all creatures to enjoy, a beauty which inclines the heart to peace, to harmony, and to love. No, what they considered sacred and important were their own devices for wielding power over each other. The whole trouble lies in that people think there are conditions excluding the necessity of love in their intercourse with man. But such conditions do not exist. Things may be treated without love. One may chop wood, make bricks, forge iron without love. But one can no more deal with people without love than one can handle bees without care. Thank you so much for joining me here at Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from my monthly program, Citizens Climate Radio. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you get podcasts. You will also find us at northernspiritradio.org. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Learn more at citizensclimateeducation.org. And many thanks to Mark Helpsmeet for this opportunity to connect with Spirit in Action listeners. Back to you, Mark. Thanks so much, Peterson. Folks, I do hope you'll connect with all of Peterson's theater, spiritual, and activist performance and endeavors at petersontoscano.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. And he'll be back in May to again post Spirit in Action. We're so lucky to have so many talented and dedicated world healers in our midst. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh